in this time now, we're going to turn to God's Word. Uh, we're going to hear from Him as the Word is preached, as it's read. Uh, we're going to hear what God has to say to us. Uh, we need Him to speak to us as the cut through all the other voices that we hear throughout the week. Uh, let's pray, though, as we, before we, we turn to His Word. Lord God, your word is truth, your word is good. Your word confronts us, but your word also points us once more to your character of being a gracious and merciful God who has sent your son Jesus to save the world, to save us. And your spirit is, in, is going forth with your word to make it effective, to grow and water the seeds that are being sown here. Spirit, water those seeds. Let them grow up. Let the seeds of faith grow stronger. Nurture them in us here. We pray that your spirit would be upon the man who is preaching here also. For he needs, uh, he is unable. He is just uh, simply trying to be a servant. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, our, we're in Mark chapter 7 this morning as we are continuing to go through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23. This is the Word of God. Please pay careful attention to it. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but we eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand... There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, or envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Amen. Well, a daughter was once helping her mother uh, prepare dinner, a nice fancy dinner, and they were making a roast. And the mother cut off both of the ends of the roast, and the roast was in the pan, and she puts the ends of the roast on top of the roast, and then puts the pan in the oven. And the daughter who had been cooking with her mother for a while said, Mom, why is it that we cut off the ends of the roast and lay them on top always? Well, she says, it's, it's the way you cook a roast. It's a family secret that we've had and that we've been doing for years. Well, why, she asked. Why do we do it? Like, what's the benefit? Does it help it cook more evenly? Does it achieve the, the center temperature more efficiently? And mom says, well, it's the way we've always done it. My mother taught me. It's what she did. I tell you what, we'll ask your, your grandmother sometime, and she'll tell us the secret about it. And so not long afterwards, the mother and the daughter were cooking another big dinner with the grandmother. And, and uh, the mother says, Mom, Mom, what's the secret with the roast? Tell, tell us about it. She says, what are you talking about? What's, what's the secret? Well, why do we cut the ends off of the roast? Why do we cut them off and lay them on top of the, of the roast? It's, like, what's it do? The grandmother says, you still do that? You still do that? It was because the pan was too small, and the only way that it would fit is if I cut off the ends and I laid them on top. See, tradition can connect us to a community, to our heritage, to our families, the customs which we do. It forms a part of our identity. But the power of tradition is remembering where it came from, knowing the history of why we do things. It's what turns a holiday from mere sentiment to having a power to it. We remember. Easter is more than just myths about bunnies conveniently hiding plastic eggs where kids will find them. It's not about that. It's about resurrection. That's the power that holds us. That Jesus Christ is raised and there is power in that. And the same goes for traditions here which form the, the patterns of our spiritual lives. The rituals which we engage in. The spiritual practices that we employ. The things we, we may not elevate to the degree of God's law, but we hold them high enough to be a serious mark of piety. All traditions, but why? Do we remember? Or are they like the ends of the pot roast passed down to us over the generations and are just assumed? It's like from the words of Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you, I don't know. But it's a tradition. Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. But even if someone understands the history and meaning of religious tradition, following it as the way to please God and show one's devotion doesn't give life. It crushes us. You always have to ask yourself, did I do it right? And this form of religious identity and this ritualism has no room for grace. It's all law, over and over, a life that is run by law. And a heart that might be weary, but isn't softened to grace. 
because it relates to God not by grace, not by his kindness, but it relates to him by law. By keeping ourselves in good standing or keeping ourselves holy apart from the only way that it could ever be affected within us. By his grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It assumes that what God wants is just mere obedience, no matter where the heart is. Like a parent simply wanting their child to obey regardless of what they truly think. And that might sound okay in certain situations, but true obedience, the obedience we want, the obedience that's desired, is done from the heart. And that's what Jesus is getting at as he's talking with the Pharisees. Get past trusting in your religious traditions and engage the heart. And we're going to follow this morning how trusting in tradition displays an external religion. And then what external religion continues to display in us, it displays hypocrisy and an ignorance of sin. And so first, trust in tradition displays an external religion. Trust in tradition displays an external religion. Now, the Pharisees, we haven't encountered them again in a while. It's been a little while as we've been going through Mark. But the Pharisees gather together to Jesus once more, and they observe something highly curious and off-putting to them. Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And in this culture, people often ate communally, or ate communally and from a common dish. And the disciples didn't wash their hands. But the Pharisees weren't disgusted because of hygienic reasons. It was due to ceremonial reasons. Why weren't they washing their hands according to the religious rituals of the day? It's summed up in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Now note, they don't mention God's commands at all, but the the traditions that were handed down to them by the religious elders. There was no command in the Old Testament law for people to ceremonially cleanse their hands before eating. The best, the closest that you'll find are the priests who are washing themselves before certain important occasions. But there was nothing, though, that extended to the rest of the people and into the, the rest of their everyday lives. It was a tradition over time that was extended to avoid defilement. Right? What if your hands were defiled in some way? Well, you better wash up first, especially before eating. They had traditions and rituals for everything, for cleansing not only the hands before eating, but the dishes, the dining couches. There were even whole person washings after going out into the public marketplaces because what happened if you would have bumped into something or someone that would have been defiling to you? But this was just one instance of the wider pharisaical practice and a principle that still, that still continues even today in so many people of slowly building fences around God's law made up of extra laws. See, they were so concerned with not breaking God's law and maintaining their holiness that they built fences around God's law. They built barriers beyond what was commanded so that they couldn't encroach upon the law there. But then what happens when you start to edge closer to that first fence? What do you do? Well, you better build another fence, a bigger one to go around that that fence to avoid encroaching on the first fence. In one sense, it's like in our house, if I was touch, if, if I was cooking and I don't want uh, my two-year-old daughter who's very curious to be touching the stove because it's hot. And if I'm, t- if I'm cooking, I say, don't touch the stove while I'm cooking. It will burn you. That's a law. 
That's a good law. But then if I say, well, okay, when I'm cooking at, at the stove here, you must take five big steps back away from the stove. That's the new law here. But you know, actually, when I'm cooking, just get out of the kitchen altogether. You know what? Even better, don't even be on the same floor as our kitchen while I'm cooking. Because if you come, if you come into the kitchen, if you're on the same floor, then you might find yourself coming into the kitchen. And if you come into the kitchen, you might find yourself getting those within that five-step radius there. And if you step in that, there's a chance that you might actually go out and touch the stove. Right? Now, to the degree that you are on the same floor, or even worse here, if you enter the kitchen, then you've broken that first rule, a good command for our flourishing of not touching the hot stove. Right? For a little more, more, more practice, a little, little more actually how this played out, Sabbath laws for them. Right? Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't do work. Well, there were entire books, books, the Mishnah, the Talmud, books, lengthy ones, continuing to expound and build these greater fences around and around and around. Okay, so you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, then don't carry something on the Sabbath, okay? Don't carry something that's a certain amount of weight because that might be work. Don't travel a certain amount of steps because that might be considered work. There's even one. If you have a handkerchief and you're on the upstairs and if you have it in your pocket, don't go downstairs with it in your pocket because you'd be carrying something tie it around your neck. That way you're not carrying it, and then you get down to the bottom and you uncarry it, or, and, and then you, you untie it, right? But see, it sounds ridiculous, but this is the heart of the religious person. And when I say the religious person, I'm not just talking about the Pharisees. I'm not just talking about the, the, the context of Judaism in which they lived. I'm talking about the religious heart, the heart that wants to relate to God based purely upon or even partially upon religion and practice and tradition. It is so obsessed with trying to maintain holiness in a superficial way that the relationship between uh, turns, uh, turns away from God's heart and a heartfelt obedience and a love of God's law into a system of do's and don'ts of our own creation. And if those are ever crossed, then God forbid what might happen. But is this really what God desires? The laws and the traditions become stacked up so high while the original law, the good law of God, is squished at the bottom and all of the life is squeezed out. And as it continues on and on, the original intent of God's law is forgotten until you end up with a devotion to God that is only as deep as human traditions can affect. External. It misses the point. And it becomes so obsessed with a devotion that is devoid of the heart. And external religion and devotion isn't what God wants. Uh, Verses 6 through 8, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29. And he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The outside looks great. My, how devoted you are. But what about the inside? You say all sorts of holy things. You engage in all sorts of religious practices. But where's your heart? I want your heart. I want real obedience to what I say. I don't just want your ideas. I don't delight in mere sacrifices or ceremonies, but in worshiping me with your whole heart and loving me from within. 
And yet, what's the draw of external religion? Why do people still do the same things today? Why do Christians even still do similar things today? It's burdensome, yes. The list of laws can be endless as we constantly find new fences to build, but it's also relatively simple. It's easy to operate on autopilot with with a list. The demands and fences are a checklist for us to, to look at and to measure ourselves. Am I following God? Well, let me pull out my checklist and see how I've been doing. See, externals are always much easier to measure than the heart. We can keep inventory of things a whole lot better and go according to our own rhythms and our own patterns. But what sort of view of God does this assume? That he's someone who just wants the checklist completed and doesn't look at the whole person. If God only looks at your actions, if he only wants to, uh, to look at how you've been able to fill out your do or your don't list, does he sound like a truly holy God? Does he sound like a good God? Does a God like that really care about us when he gives us laws and commands? When people are put off because God... Uh, sounds egotistical and controlling because he just wants things his way. It's a similar view of God as this. And can we blame others if we tend to engage in the same sort of external religion? See, God's laws are for his glory, but they're also for our good. And he wants all of you. He wants your whole person to follow his laws. Not just the outside, but the inside. Your heart, your desires, your motives. Places where fences and traditions and external religion cannot penetrate. God is personal. And a personal God is concerned with the whole person. And so what sort of view does external religiousness assume? An impersonal God of external law. Not a personal God of grace or mercy. Because tradition has no room for grace. The only category of relating to God is by works to hold you in his favor. And so obedience becomes flat. It's done out of fear. It's robotic. It's devoid of the heart. It's not a category that fits into new life in Jesus. Knowing and following Jesus is done from the heart. It's done with the whole person. The heart isn't kept by law. It's kept by grace. And he doesn't tell you to look at this cross and then guilt you into following him because he gave up his life for you. No, he tells you to look at his cross and see his mercy, see his forgiveness, see his grace as all of your sins are forgiven and to lay aside your diagram of external fences and to rest in his life for you. His grace and his mercy penetrate to the heart. It instills a new desire to obey. But not to obey out of ritual, but to obey out of love flowing from his love. So a a trust in tradition displays external religion. But then next here, external religion then displays hypocrisy. External religion displays hypocrisy. Jesus responds to the Pharisees uh, in verse 6 by calling them hypocrites. And what's a hypocrite? Someone who does one thing and then says another. And in the Greco-Roman world, the word that we have for hypocrite was used to describe an actor. Someone who wore a mask to disguise themselves. Their true self was hidden underneath. And that's the essence of external religion. 
It wears a religious disguise. It puts on religious makeup to hide the person underneath. And Jesus applies those words from Isaiah 29 to the Pharisees. And in a wider degree also here to all people who engage in mere external religion. You may say certain words. You may do certain things that look religious. None of that which I really care about. But without the heart, you're not really worshiping me. See, it's easy to to disguise ourselves and our devotion to God with empty traditions or religious ideals. We can make ourselves look however we want. We can present ourselves as very devoted people. The words we speak, the attitudes we convey or we project, how we carry ourselves. But do these things always come from the heart? Or do they, is it because we want to prove to others that we are devoted? Or perhaps maybe even proving to ourselves that we really are devoted. And so Jesus, then using Isaiah 29, says that without the heart, you're not really worshiping God. In fact, you're worshiping yourself because hypocrites act in their own self-interests. If we're not aware, we may find ourselves slowly and subtly shifting from the love of God to the love of self. Maybe even loving what God loves into reasons that puts ourselves and our image on display. Right? It's those subtle shifts of motive. Jesus points out to the Pharisees the great lengths that they took their hypocrisy, even by ignoring the most obvious laws of God. And he levels an indictment against them. And he goes on the offensive by giving just one example of how far they displayed their hypocrisy. And he uses the command... To honor one's father and mother. The fifth commandment here. It's very clear. One of the basic ten. Not an obscure law in the least. But also a serious law. You know, he also says in Exodus 21 that there is a punishment of death for not honoring your father and mother. Right? Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Not only is it a clear law, it's a serious law. Yet for even a, a law as, as seriousness and clear as this command is, the traditions and the external religiosity of the Pharisees had a loophole for getting around it. And it was something called the Corban offering, which you see in verse 11. Corban offering, it was basically devoting something that you had to God. A possession, a treasure, some sort of financial idea. I am devoting this all to the service and use of God. It belongs to him. Now, that wasn't something that was from the Old Testament. It was a tradition and a practice that began at some point. And it's certainly not a wrong practice. might even be a good idea. But an unnecessary practice still for proving devotion. Right? For true devotion. But Jesus points out a scenario that commonly happened. Well, what if someone had declared everything that they had to be Corbin? Everything I have belongs to God. It all belongs to God. And then later finds out that their parents are in need. Well, sorry, Mom and Dad. I just can't help you out. You see, everything I have is Corbin. I have devoted everything to God. It all is His. And so who am I to take it away from Him? The fifth commandment. It's clear what God wants. It's clear how serious it is. And still their hypocrisy won the day. They... What seems to be particularly holy here in giving everything to God, but at the heart here it ignores what God really wanted. 
And Jesus says in verse 3, and many such things you do. This was only one example. Now the catch of talking about hypocrisy is always doing so at a distance, isn't it? Those Pharisees. They're such hypocrites. Ignoring God's plain truth right in front of them as they put their devotion on display. Or how about those religious fundamentalists who put all sorts of traditions as laws upon people because none of us have the same tendencies, right? Have we ever disguised our own sin? Have we ever made excuses for not following God's law under some other religious or practical excuse? It's the same thing. And so it makes us uncomfortable because hypocrites don't like to be exposed. None of us do. I'll be the first to raise my hand. I don't like to be exposed. And there are certain reasons why we wear the the disguise. We want to project a certain religious image to convince even ourselves of our godliness. And when that mask comes down and our hearts are laid bare, then we see how little we've actually loved God. Friends, that's where we find freedom. Because we are confronted anew with our need for grace and mercy. And only then are we fit to come before God and asking afresh for his mercy. Asking afresh for his grace. And we see that it's not the sacrifices and the rituals that save us. It's not how we find favor. It's in God's mercy. God's mercy which is found in Jesus. He removes the mask from us. As painful as that may be. So that we can look in the mirror And we can drop the the facade. And he gives us something better. He doesn't give us a mask of our own self-righteous practices to put on again. He gives us the robes of Jesus' perfect righteousness for us to wear. True holiness. Holiness that's good. Holiness that we need. The third then, external religion doesn't just display hypocrisy... External religion also displays an ignorance of sin. It displays an ignorance of sin. Because Jesus goes farther as he addresses their own external religiosity in verse 15. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. How's a person defiled? By the things that come out of the heart. It's nothing from the inside that def- or the outside that defiles a person. It's not the food they eat. It's not the cleanliness of the dish. It's not what you happen to bump into while public. It's not what you encounter. It's not something from the outside that permeates through our skin into us. The source is inside of us. And it's a question that they never considered, I'm guessing. What if sin is something more than What if if sin is something that a fence can't keep me away from? What if one of my religious fences can't protect me from sin and defilement because the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't over the fence. What if the problem is actually within me? And if so, external religion in whatever manifestation it takes is ineffective. It doesn't matter how much devotion you display. Jesus brings up an entirely foreign concept to them. And for the Pharisees, it's not the food that that you eat that defiles you. It's not the hands that prepare the food. It's not the dishes that touch the food. Food goes in, food goes through, food goes out. And never once does it touch the deepest parts of our being, 
all the way where soul and body meet. It never once makes contact with the moral places and the moral parts of our persons. And if all of this is true, as Jesus says, then it has radical implications. Because the seeds of sin reside in our own heart. And not just of sin in general. Sins of every type. Verse 21 and following gives us a very exhaustive list. A long list. See, doesn't the thought of that level us? Because it means that we are all capable of the same sins. The same seeds lie buried within the soil of our hearts, waiting to be watered and nurtured and given the right conditions to sprout forth. Do we find that offensive? Do we find that uncomfortable? I mean, we look at people committing heinous or gross sins. Do we believe, though, that deep down that we are morally superior to them? That we are better than they are? Friends, if the same seeds are in our hearts, then the capabilities are within us too. Are we any different than they are? Or are we more like them than we like to think? See, sin doesn't poison the well of our hearts. The truth is, the well was already poisoned. Sin isn't an effect, or or sin isn't a product of our environment. All environment does is teach us new ways to sin, or it creates new contexts for, for particular sins to ripen. It's not a result of the things that are done to us or the fault of other people around us. Those are all occasions for the sinful heart to show itself. The well isn't poisoned because of anything that we've introduced to it. It's not defiled because of the substances that we've put into our bodies. It's not spoiled because of the things that we've done with our bodies. The water that's drawn from the well is deathly because the source is bad. If you hook a water faucet up to a poisoned well, the water that comes out will be poisoned. It doesn't matter how beautiful that you make that faucet. The pipes could be made of pure silver with water coming from a golden faucet. You can even have some nice artwork on the walls to liven things up a bit, freshen the room up. But you know what? It doesn't change the fact that the water coming out from that faucet is still going to be poisoned no matter how all of it looks. Everything on the outside doesn't matter. What matters is the the source itself. The well needs healing. If the source then becomes clean, then the water flowing from it will become clean. See, tradition and ritual aren't able to penetrate into our hearts. They can't bear the true weight of sin. And external religion can't fix the problem. It can't even understand the problem. Because if religious practice and devotion is really to be pleasing to God, authentically pleasing, it can't be from the outside moving inward. It needs to engage the heart. But what's the very problem in the first place? It's the heart. We need the heart changed. We need something to address the need of the heart. We need something that goes much deeper into the heart and to heal what ritual or tradition cannot do. Again, we need the grace of God. We need Jesus. We need his forgiving work on the cross to address our sin down to the depths of our hearts. And God's grace runs even deeper. It goes further than just the forgiveness of our sins. It also changes our hearts to heal them and to affect our desires. Jesus' cross takes our sin and it takes our sinfulness 
And his spirit that he pours forth into us is the pure water which heals the poisoned well of the human heart. The well is made clean. The the source of our desires is purified. And so that from a restored heart, new and pleasing devotion to God can come forth. Life in Jesus isn't reduced to just a change in behavior. It's a change in heart. True change comes from within. Those are the most radical effects. Old desires fading, new desires emerging. That can't come from the things that you do. It comes from the Spirit, from what He does within you. And if you want to experience real life in Christ, real life, real devotion to God in ways that please Him, rather than trying to relate to Him in some sort of religious checklist then pray that he would change your heart. And it's not overnight. It's a process. And some of those seeds that we have are planted deep into our soils. Some of them have sprouted. And for some of them, the roots are pretty stubborn. But over time, the spirit works. And those seeds will slowly be dug out of the the heart's soil. And new seeds will start to be planted and watered and grown. See, we don't plant them They don't grow by your own self either, but by Jesus' work, by his spirit within you. The old seeds, the new seeds, though, both of them still grow and they grow together. And so weeding is a constant process. And it's why humility is an ongoing response. Because we still have no room for self-righteousness. It's not the traditions, it's not the rituals, it's not the external religious ideals which hold you and give you identity. It's Jesus. Focusing on the outside actions and how we present ourselves, it misses the heart. And the people who are more concerned with our presentation rather than a cleansed heart miss the point. Are we trying to make ourselves appear more holy? Or are we relying on the holiness of Jesus and basking in his work for us? And are we concerned with making people conform to a certain ideal of outward holiness according to what we think it should look like? Or are we pointing them to the mercy of Jesus and relying on the Spirit's work to conform them more to his commands? See, it isn't about saying the right things or acting the right ways. And of course, right being the ways that we deem them. But we shouldn't expect someone to come in and be immediately sanctified in their whole life, especially if they're new to the faith. The Spirit continues to work on our hearts, and He will, and He's still working on ours, and even when He's been working for a very long time, and we still have remnants of poison floating through our waters. But praise God. Praise Jesus. Praise His mercy as He pours out His cleansing Spirit into our hearts. To make us more like him. To get past presenting our own traditions and our own rituals that dress up our outer self. And do the proper work inside to love him and to love others more than we did before. From a cleansed inner heart. Let's pray. Father, we may not like it, but we ask that you would show us our external religions. Show us our traits, our outside religiosity. Again, we may not like it, but we need to see it. We need to recognize it so that the mask, the facade can come down. And we would again see see us uh, 
see them for what they really are, empty, and that you would show us something better, Jesus. His cross, his reconciliation, his work through the Spirit to make us more like you, to make us more uh, holy. And in this process, Lord God, make us humble also to see our hearts. Make us humble enough to drop our facades and to rely on Jesus and to rely upon the Spirit. Change our hearts so that we might be a people who truly does love you more, a people who truly do love others more, not from our own selves, but from your work that you're doing within us. As we come to your table where you feed us and remind us of that work again, prepare us then as we come to that table. In Jesus' name, amen.